Hey, this is Tony Kramer, product specialist with RDO Equipment Company, and you are listening to the Agriculture Technology Podcast. Every day, there are phenomenal advancements being made in the field of agriculture technology. RDO Equipment Company is a leader in agriculture equipment and precision agriculture technology and is here with industry experts bringing the latest news and information from RDO and John Deere. Thanks for joining us on the Agriculture Technology Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is episode 94, and today we are going to be talking about precision agriculture adoption. Before we dive into the show, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You can subscribe to the show on the many podcasting apps that we're streaming this to, such as Apple's podcasting app. We have it on Stitcher, Overcast, SoundCloud, as well as many others. While you're out there, drop us a review. We'd really like to hear what you think about the show. Lastly, make sure to follow RDO Equipment Company on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and catch all of our latest videos packed full of information on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at RDO Tony K. Now with that, let's get back to the show. I'm really excited to welcome back Dr. Bruce Erickson. I was lucky enough to get him for our our last episode, episode number 93, where we talked about the Precision Dealer Survey, where Dr. Erickson is very, uh, very involved in that. So if you're interested, you want to hear a little bit more about that, I encourage you to go back to episode number 93, listen to that episode and what we talked about there. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Erickson is back on the show for this next episode. Uh, Dr. Erickson is the Education, Distance, and Outreach Director at Purdue University. Thanks again for joining me on the show, uh, again, for a second time, Dr. Erickson, to talk about the precision agriculture adoption. And before we get into that, why don't you give us another brief introduction on yourself and how you kind of got involved in this industry? Well, Tony, I'm glad you invited me back. I must not have been too bad on that previous one, I guess, is what I'm reading into this. And so, um, yeah, uh, I'm an Iowa farm kid, uh, took my first position out of uh, Iowa State as an agronomist for uh, Pioneer Hybrid in western Iowa, and then came to Purdue, where I got my Ph.D., did consulting work in Indianapolis with a, with a company, uh, then came back to Purdue, did a uh, site-specific management center and top farmer workshop there, and uh, had a stint as the uh, uh, education manager for the American Society of Agronomy, our professional society, where I started doing online classes. And so then uh, currently what I do is I run an academy of uh, three online classes. We're actually building more classes. There's a uh, beginning agronomy class. These are each 12-week classes, uh, all fully online. Uh, There's a precision agriculture class and a nutrient management class. And we've had over 1,300 students that have taken these classes. And uh, it's been a a, uh, very successful program. So um, really glad to be here talking to everyone today. The last episode that we had you on, we talked about the Precision Dealer Survey and how you are involved with that and and getting those results and compiling those. Today, what we're going to talk about is kind of the adoption of precision agriculture throughout the world. I believe you guys at Purdue University, you do a little bit of research and some studying on what that kind of looks like, uh, kind of in conjunction with that Precision Dealer Survey Uh, So let's talk a little bit about that. The first thing I want to ask, and I love asking this question because it... I get a lot of the same answers, but a lot of uh, of different variations of that same answer. So 
What is the definition of precision agriculture? You asked me a question that's impossible to answer, I must say. And so thanks a lot for that is what I'll tell you back. But um, there, there's a lot of confusion about that. Uh, some people call it precision farming. It's digital agriculture. It's smart farming. And uh, the uh, International Society of Precision Agriculture actually sent out uh, some candidate definitions to their membership. And um they settled on this. Uh, precision agriculture is a management strategy that uses electronic information and other technologies to gather, process, and analyze spatial and temporal data for the purpose of guiding targeted actions to improve efficiency, productivity, and sustainability of agricultural operations. And so um, that's, that's quite a long statement there, but um, you can find, um, you know, dozens of different somewhat different definitions and i think that speaks to the complexity of precision agriculture too because uh it's it's uh, not just one thing it's not uh, uh something that's easily defined it's a set of related technologies they all have uh, uh some of them are gps related they all have electronics as part of them but we're trying to do the right thing in the in the field uh, in the right place at the right time so um, let me tell you part of the reason why we wanted to do this uh, particular article. And so, uh, you know, Tony already mentioned the uh, precision dealer survey that we do every couple of years and we've done for 20 years. Uh, so that's our survey. But but uh, we wanted a colleague of mine and I wanted to review all the surveys that uh and i and let me say all the surveys because uh i don't remember how many surveys we reviewed i forgot to count them before talking to you here but um and they're they're uh, very difficult to find you just don't uh you know type into a google search uh precision agriculture survey and expect to find all these uh surveys because uh, some of them are dealer surveys, like ours was. Um, um, many of them are farmer surveys. Um, there are some that are in other languages. We report on an Italian survey. There's a German, Denmark. There's uh, a, a little activity in Africa and Asia, but not too much. There's quite a bit in Spanish and Portuguese in South America. And so my co-author, thankfully, and I have... have uh, you know, this has been our business for the last, uh, I don't know, X years, and uh, we, we follow this. And so using, I guess my point is using standard re review procedures like you would do with uh, a lot of technologies just doesn't work very well with precision agriculture. So let me point out that my colleague with this was uh, Jess Lohenberg DeBoer. He and I are the co-authors. He's the lead author on this, actually. And... Uh, he is the uh, former Dean of International Programs at Purdue. He's now a uh, professor at uh, Harper Adams University in uh, England right now. And he has a long history of, uh, of writing in precision agricultural economics and probably the most published person in that particular area. So I have to ask you, you kind of talked about the different sources that you were pulling information from and everything like that. Why did you and your co-author feel this research was necessary? Well, we we have heard, uh, you know, we go to conferences and, and uh, you know, we, we, we try to get, a you know, the pulse of the industry and what the government's thinking. Um, 
And uh, we, we keep hearing that uh, farmers and agribusinesses are not adopting precision agriculture as quickly as we think they would be adopting it. And why would that be? I mean, if this is the miracle technology. So that was sort of our hypothesis of this is that uh, let's, you know, uh, see if we can explain some of these factors as to, you know, why are, uh, if I look at the uh, Department of Agriculture information here, why are less than like a quarter of farmers using variable rate technology on their corn, soybean and wheat fields uh, when you know, most people would say that that should be a, a really uh, positive thing to do that would help the environment, would save the farmer money. And, and so um, the thing that we have to do, though, with a review article to get published, and this is an article in Agronomy Journal, which is a, a refereed journal article that, uh, you know, you have reviewers and, and they're very careful because they want to make sure that the, the science is sound on this. But... Um, these everything that we have referenced here has been a published survey that has been peer reviewed. You know, if, if uh, Tom, Dick and Harry, you know, did a survey and put it on an Internet site or whatever, we really couldn't use that. We had to use refereed things to make sure that the quality was good. Going into the the research and getting started, what hypothesis was set on all of this research at the beginning? Yeah, so so our thought on this, and I talked about this in the previous interview some, is that um, earlier I said that precision agriculture is a complicated mixture of a lot of different technologies, guidance and sensors and remote sensing, drones, uh, electrical conductivity, variable rate technology, uh, telematics, and you can go on and on and on. Uh, but you could lump those, all of those into a couple of major categories, what we feel like are what we call the automated technologies that uh, a farmer can install, and they're pretty much doing their thing independently of the farmer or the agri-dealer based on the location in the field and maybe some other parameters. There's that group. And then the other group would be what we call the more information intensive technologies where we collect information via sensors, you know, soil sampling, remote sensing, electrical conductivity, all those kind of things. We analyze it and then we form a prescription that tells us how much, where, where, when, all of those things around the field. And so our hypothesis was that the automated technologies had been more widely and rapidly adopted and the information intensive technologies had been less widely and uh, quickly adopted on farms. And that turned out uh, for, from our, uh, so we, we reinforced our hypothesis is what I'll say. Going through this research process, and you had talked about all the different sources of where your data was coming from, of different surveys throughout the world and involving different countries and regions, what, as you were, were studying this and, and bringing in that information, what, what did the results look like? What type of information was starting to flow in, and what were you guys starting to compile? Well, I, I guess what we, what we found out on some of these surveys is that which you which you hope to be the case in in that anytime you do a survey 
it, it needs to be a, a random sample. There, you try to reduce the bias in a survey. And one thing we quickly noticed, and of course we knew some of this already on some of the surveys, is that, for instance, uh, a number of surveys uh, in, in invited in uh, farmers that were already doing precision agriculture on their farms and asked them, you know, are you using certain practices? Of course, that's not a representative survey. You're already biasing it to the farmers that are already doing precision agriculture. So that's one form of bias that we were really careful about and talked about um, in our survey results. Another form of bias that happens all the time is that uh, just the big farmers are surveyed. Um, and it's fine, of course, with a survey if you identify that in the beginning, but uh, in many cases, it's the bigger farmers that are have the means to adopt some of these technologies. And so that uh, can influence the data in the numbers. And, and, that, and we found that out in many cases. And so uh, those are just things to be careful about, uh, you know, as you're, as you're doing a review article that, you know, happens all the time in, uh, in research. But in, in general, what we found out, uh, you know, looking around the world uh, with, with various technologies, like, like with guidance, if I can just generalize, um, uh, like in the United States and the Midwest and other parts where the field sizes tend to be bigger, and the fields are more open. The similar situation would be in Australia uh, and for somewhat also true in the United Kingdom, where at least in more as you go uh, to the north and east in, in, the, in England there, uh, there are bigger fields and, and bigger areas there. There seems to be more adoption of guidance and, and because there's more of an advantage potentially for doing that. And, and also, uh, I would say, uh, add to that uh, South America, Brazil and Argentina, there, there's relatively high adoption of those uh, technologies. But one thing, um, you know, you, you sort of got to know the situation and, and how farming is done in uh, those areas. And of course, Australia would be, in many cases, huge fields and, and uh, very open fields and uh, in the United States and Australia, it's the farmers themselves that are running the equipment in many cases. If you go to South America, uh, you know, and, and most of our listeners probably know this, the, the farmers are there are more like farm managers and they hire equipment operators. In many cases, the equipment operators may have smaller equipment and may have, a, you know, more machines uh, or smaller machines and more of them. And so that could be a possible reason why you know the adoption in Argentina and Brazil isn't always as high as we think it might be because uh, of, of that particular situation. So that's just one example. With the the results and what you compiled, did you did you kind of encompass the entire precision agriculture spectrum, or did you lump it into a certain diff, a few different categories that are most widely adopted? I mean, I'll just have to say we tried to do it all, and which was a problem as we, you know, uh, got going on this as the reviewers were all just like, oh, this is way, way too long, <laughs> you know, and uh, we're going to have to cut this back. And so we did have to leave out, uh, you know, some some sections, and we were looking at precision agriculture in, um, you know, in um, specialty farms uh, like vegetables mm -hmm. and uh, horticultural crops, um, 
you know, like vineyards and um, those types of things. And, and we cut out those sections. And then we had a section on sugar crops, uh, you know, like sugar cane and uh, sugar beets and, and that type of thing. Or we greatly reduced that section, too. So one thing that I uh, that you've led me in here to to talk about, though, is that um, so I, I mentioned earlier that variable rate technology uh, has not caught on as much as we most people around the world would think it would partially because of the complexity of putting the story together to understand the variability in the field. But interestingly enough, and I think maybe of acute interest to your listeners because um, of where you're located or where some of your um, locations are, is that one very notable exception to that that we noted in this paper is uh, with variable rate nitrogen on sugar beets in the Red River Valley. And we don't have a lot of information on that, but it was our understanding that uh, there's a high rate of adoption of nit variable nitrogen rate in that particular reg region on sugar beets on that crop. And part of the reason we think that is, is that uh, for sugar beets, you can be too low or you can be too high, and, and the, you're paid based on the quality of those beets in addition to the amount of and I'm not a sugar beet person. You're probably you can shoot holes in my discussion here. I don't <laughs> completely understand this, but um, some other factors that we saw was that uh, there was a lot of cooperation. It appeared to be between the universities and the um, sugar cooperatives. Uh, the parameters were well defined as to the lower end of what needed to be for nitrogen to produce the the correct correct uh, percentage of sugar in those beets, and um, there was there was money attached in order to the farmers were where sugar beet farmers were paid a premium for the quality aspect and so there's a relatively high adoption of variable rate technology for that and and uh tony maybe you can now correct all the mistakes i've made on this but uh, th that was interesting that that was turned out that way no, it's very, very interesting that you bring that up, and it and it does hold true being uh, here in the Red River Valley with a lot of sugar beets uh, in this region, and I myself growing up in kind of south-central Minnesota, uh, growing up with a family farm that raises sugar beets too, so uh, no, you, you do bring up a very good point and, and how it all plays into the, the crop production of sugar beets. With all of the the research with the guidance and the variable rate technology, you brought one of the things that was very interesting about this research is that it was worldwide. You and your co-author did not just focus on North America. You wanted to understand world adoption when it comes to precision agriculture. Let's just go through and talk about uh, kind of down the different continents and, and what research you compiled what are some of the most widely adopted technologies in each of the regions? Okay, well, that was a that's a perfect introduction here that, that I can uh, cite several examples of things that are going on. And uh, one thing that I guess I can say broadly, first of all, is that um, most of the world is still not using precision agriculture because most of the world is smallholder farmers. Um, if you think of China and India and many parts of Africa and other parts of the world, uh, you know that uh, the typical farmer around the world, you know, does not have several thousand acres and um, a John Deere tractor. I, I can say that because you guys are uh, 
they are farming a hectare or two and uh, they're, uh, sub, you know, subsistence farming. And so many people are trying very hard to, you know, figure out how we work with precision agriculture. And, you know, precision is relative. What's precise, you know, to uh, um, uh, me is different than being precise to, say, an ant or whatever. You know, they have a whole different relative scale of the world that they see. And so, uh, you know, just some things. Uh, I've already talked about the difference between the automated technologies and their relatively high adoption compared to the variable rate technologies. Uh, let's just go back to South America that we mentioned before. Again, uh, the difference in their, their farmers and, and that um, even before I go there, I should say that, um, you know, we often think in the United States that everything started here. But um, auto guidance actually from from the research that we've done actually started a couple of years prior to us getting it here in Australia. Because, again, of the application there of their huge fields and, you know, their need for a technology like that. Um, you know, so South America, yield monitor use is started out, uh, they were leading with yield monitor use in South America probably before we were. And again, that's because, partially because if you're a South American farmer, uh, you're not necessarily on that combine like a North American farmer is. North American farmer, you're in the field, you can see the you know the drowned out spot you can see like on the edge of the field where maybe the deer you know came in and, and took part of the crop you can see those obvious things with south american farmers they're more interested in that type of thing and so a relatively high adoption of, of that technology okay so i a few years ago i was in uh, brazil on sugarcane farms and i i was on a 250,000 acre and i'm you know People throw out numbers, or I'm, I'm not meaning to brag about this, but this was a very big farm that had its own railroad, actually, and, and everything for moving stuff around. And uh, they were doing very little variable rate, te variable rate technology on that particular farm, but they were really on top of guidance. And again, this is an example of a crop-specific thing. If you're familiar with sugarcane, you know that it is planted and then cut multiple times. And so it's bad to drive over the rows because you hurt the plants. You, you don't want to be doing that. And so, um, but they have a struggle with uh, variable rate technology because whereas I, I believe there is a yield monitor available on um, sugarcane, it's not as widely used as uh, our monitors that, that we have for grain. And so without a yield monitor, they don't know how the various things that they've done in different parts of the field are uh, ending up in, in that situation. So in Europe, uh, another example here, variable rate technology um, and uh, many of the, the uh, precision technologies are, are used to verify that, that from an environmental standpoint that they're not getting too close to water and that they're applying the correct rate because environmental considerations are a lot more important from uh, a European standpoint. Uh, there's more regulations and that type of thing compared to what we have in North America and some other parts of the world. And so um, I don't know if you want me to keep going on. I mean, we can we can probably talk about some some other scenarios. Um, you know, we, we talked about the smallholder farmers and in many of the parts of the world. 
you have even in uh, Europe, you have uh, farmers with very small fields, and um, you know it just sort of depends on the situation. They're they're probably less likely to have guidance and um, section controllers on their fields because just of the the field size and the way that they're set up. It's really cool to hear all of the different reasons we use precision agriculture. You talk about in Europe, the environmental effects are a big factor. And and we too in the United States and North America have some of that that we see. Uh, We talk about the four R's of of nutrient management and all of that stuff. So it's it's really unique to see how each region, how each country is is more so using precision agriculture. One of the things that I want to ask is what can be done for those regions that, and, and this is maybe an opinion more so, what can be done in those regions where adoption has traditionally been slow for certain technologies? So, I mean, I know a lot of smart people have worked on this, but I mean, what kind of technology, if you have a person that's farming a you know, a hectare or two and a half acres of land uh, in a developing country, uh, I, it's really a struggle to figure out how to help them uh, to, to any electronic technology. You know, some, some things that we have thought of that might, uh, you know, some aspects of precision farming that might help them you know, and, and I know many of our people that are listening have traveled around the world, and you know that most, uh, even though they're uh, subsistence farmers, they, they probably have a cell phone. And uh, we maybe could, uh, you know, provide information like extension type of information to those people. There there are maybe apps that could be used to, to help them, we'll say, with the, the weather and to anticipate something. There's a great need in some of those developing countries for them to do understand the nutrient situation in their fields. Um, you know, maybe there's some type of an inexpensive soil testing device that can be used. But, you know, the current state of soil testing is typically we take, a, you know, subsamples, uh, blend them into a sample and take them to a soil testing lab. You know, is there is there something that we could do that way? And, and all those things, I'm sure, are being uh, tested around the world. And so um, I think, you know, the, the bigger question on, say, like variable rate technology, uh, you know, why uh, in the United States, for example, uh, the minority of farmers are still doing that. And, uh, and I think part of the reason is that, uh, you know, like I said in the other interview, is that um, fields are more complicated than we thought they were. I mean, you, you drive by a wheat field or a corn field and it's a green field and it looks the same all along the highway. And you think, you know, what in the heck could be complicated about that? But you have uh, different soils. You have uh, you've done maybe variable rate on there before. You have different nutrient levels. Uh, you have different uh, water patterns and drainage and water flowing in different parts of that field. And uh, we really need to do a lot more work in terms of understanding fields and their variability. And uh, just this past week, we interviewed uh, a couple of people, and we've actually extended an, an offer. We're, we're looking at crop modeling. We, we need to have people that put these puzzle pieces together to understand, you know, if my crop was planted on this date, and I've had this rain on these dates, and I put on this amount of nutrient, what is that going to be in the end? If you think about the number of factors that, that affect the end result of a 
whether it's a sugar beet field or a wheat field or a corn field or a soybean field or whatever, you can make a list a mile long as to all of those factors that affect the end result. And uh, those factors also interact. You know, the, the plants will, if it's dry, the plants will act differently compared to, you know, they'll, they'll adapt to that. And so this becomes a really complicated thing. And so I guess my point is of, with this long discussion here is that there, there needs to be more work done to understand all of those uh, innuendos that are happening in fields. And uh, as you know, there's been huge investments in, in the data side of precision agriculture in order to understand those things. We know from a, a private standpoint, there are dozens of companies that offer, uh, that are data service providers that help farmers to collect their information and to help them understand what's going on in their fields. And, and uh, you know, we're still really in the infancy of that. Um, you know, I guess it's... Um, it's it's just very interesting that we so underestimated how complicated these fields are. But we'll have, we're eventually going to figure this out, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, you bring up a really good point there that it not only is the adoption of precision agriculture a, a focus uh, throughout the world, but also the, the continual adapting of precision agriculture and the growth of what it is. And you hit it right on the head with with the research and figuring out exactly what it takes and what needs to be done and that leads me into my last question dr erickson where so this research study that you and your co-author uh, uh were, were a part of where can people go and and where can they who can they talk to to maybe maybe this research study they want to learn more about or read or maybe there's other uh, published research articles out there from from you or some colleagues where can people go to find this information? Yeah, well, um, so this is going to be published in Agronomy Journal, which is a, um, I, I've gone ahead and paid the fees so it's open access. And so, um, you know, I, I believe that uh, most anyone then will be able to access this particular study. Um, a lot of the information, of course, in Agronomy Journal, you have to pay the subscription because, I mean, they have costs to publish and to uh, you know, run their organization and those types of things. But um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think I would direct people back to like what I said in the previous interview that you go to your, um, you know, university uh, sites and many of them, whether it's um, University of Minnesota, like you mentioned, Nebraska, Iowa State, uh, uh, Purdue, I can't mention them all today, but most of them have information on precision agriculture. And um, like for, you know, a farmer or even an agri-dealer, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, networking and having other people that you work with is one of the best ways to, um, you know, to learn about things because um, we all know that it's hard to work in a vacuum. Yes, that is exactly it. And networking, that's one thing that I've found to be very valuable. We were talking uh, previous or, or prior to recording this episode, how how I've, I've utilized Twitter to connect with different people throughout the agriculture industry. So uh, yeah, definitely uh, networking and, and talking to different people within the industry definitely helps you find this information. And I'll just add, if I can butt in here again at the end, is that... Um, you know, my brother-in-law farms in Illinois, and he belongs to a peer group, and those are becoming more popular. And I know that they talk about, uh, I mean, they talk a lot about their finances. They're one of these peer groups that actually shares their 
kind of confidential financial information amongst each other and they make decisions of what do they think the grain markets are going to do? Are they going to adopt certain technologies? I, I think that's really helpful to have, um, you know, to uh, have, have a group of people that you test your ideas from. Yeah, that's a really neat uh, a neat theory there to to actually be comfortable enough with the the peers, whether it's neighbors or or people from different areas, to be able to share that information and learn from each other. Uh, there's definitely something to be said about learning from others' mistakes and 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 also other successes. We know, we know that farmers, um, you know, in in many many areas, the Midwest and you know the plains are part of this, and that they. They, they may not share with their near neighbors because they compete with their neighbors for land resources, for rental rates and those kind of things. And so, you know, many of these peer groups uh, there are from farmers that are spread out geographically. The one that my brother-in-law works with has um, Iowa, Illinois, Kentucky and Indiana members, as I recall. And that's really neat, too, because it gives them a, a much broader spectrum of, of the ag industry, not just in their county or in their state. So it gives another perspective uh, across the United States. I just want to thank you, Dr. Erickson, for sitting down with me again for a second episode to to share the wealth of knowledge that you have in in your extensive background in agriculture and education and all of the research that you do there at Purdue University. So thank you again for doing this. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Visit rdoequipment.com backslash podcast to listen to new episodes and catch up on any that you have missed. You can also listen and subscribe to our podcast on any device or streaming service.